Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Mercatus Podcast, Digital Grocer, episode 14, and we're recording right here at Mercatus HQ. And guess what? Summertime has crept in to downtown Toronto. I think today we're going to get something like 30 degrees Celsius. And for those of you who do not know the metric system, that's 90 Fahrenheit, and that's uh, pretty hot and sticky for this city. I'm your host, Sylvain Perrier, President and CEO of Mercatus Technologies, and joining me today is Mercatus's very own Senior Director of Marketing, Mark Fairhurst. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's, it is an amazing pleasure to yes. be back. And at the board is our trusted sound engineer, Kevin Glenn. How's it going? Now, Mark, when this last time we recorded mm-hmm. episode 13, we talked about a, an important subject. Yep. It's not the most riveting subject, right? It's CCPA, and that is not an accounting term. It's the California Consumer Privacy Act. And there's been a lot of changes since episode 13 that have kind of transpired out there in in the world of politics Mm -hmm. and retail and so on. So I don't know if you know this, but there's been nine states that have actually filed their own copycat bills. And there's been this really interesting Senate bill that's been proposed by Senator Josh Hawley or Mm -hmm. Haley. I'm not sure how to properly pronounce his last name. But it's kind of like this do not track bill that really will give control back to the consumer to say, hey, by the way, mobile app or website, I do not want to be tracked. And that's kind of interesting because what's happening with all these changes, there's going to be new investments in terms of what are the penalties going to be for Mm -hmm. the publicly traded or the private corporations. And that just makes the life of a company that provides an e-commerce solution that much more challenging and difficult. So I'm kind of excited to see what's going to happen. But in any case, we're definitely going to inform our listeners out there and to let them know what's the best approach and what they should be doing. I think with the CCPA, like most things, people tend to procrastinate until it's right on their doorstep. Right. So as the I think the calendar looms in the dead, January 2020. The interest in this topic will increase enormously. Well, there'll be a mad scramble. Absolutely. Right. I think there are certain retailers out there today that I think are still not complying on the whole Visa Amex kind of type of thing where you'd have to be secure and so on and so on and so on. So stay tuned. But, you know, CCPA aside, there's been a tremendous amount of developments out there in the industry. And one thing, couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. I think it was mid-June, really caught my attention. And it was this video posted up on YouTube from Kevin Coop mm-hmm. over at... Morning Newsbeat? Yeah, Morning yeah. Newsbeat, yeah. which was really interesting. And he was kind of talking about the subject just was riveting. Even the title of the video was, you know, the whole idea of data being weaponized. And Kevin went on in his video, he was interviewing someone for a podcast at a trade show, if my memory serves me correctly, (laughs) and how this Whole Foods shopper using the Instacart mobile app, and we all know today that because, you know, Whole Foods is owned by Amazon and they've been, you know, unceremoniously delisted, you know, they decided to remove themselves from the whole Instacart mobile experience and likely the marketplace online as well. That this individual specifically, you know, according to Kevin, received an email from Instacart calling out, hey, here are the items that you've historically purchased with us, uh, with Whole Foods through the Instacart marketplace. Hey, by the way, just so you know, these items are equally available from other retailers that are on the marketplace. And 
you know, that's kind of surprising considering that, you know, there's been debate out there in the industry of, well, who owns the data? What can and can't be done? The whole notion of the brand, who controls the brand, right, right. and so on. And then, you know, when I listened to the video, then I clicked on the associated link back to Kevin's website. And then, you know, by scrolling through the whole written aspect of the post, there was mention of this very interesting report that was prepared by Barclays Equity Investment. And it was titled Dissecting the Instacart Addiction. It's a great title. <laughs> It's an, yeah. an addiction. And, you know, drugs are bad things, as, as Nancy Reagan used to say, right? <laughs> Just say no. And so we felt that it was important that for our audience and our retailers and the potential retailers that we may be working with someday, that we shed light on this report. And so we've decided on our show today to invite the principal author to speak about this. And she's comfortably sitting in her office at Barclays in New York City. Her name is Karen Short. Karen is the managing director at Barclays Investment Bank. She's a former Toronto native, but more so a New York native now. She's lived in New York longer than she has in Toronto. And prior to being at Barclays, she was managing director at Deutsche Bank. And before that, she was at Bank of Montreal. Karen, welcome to our podcast, Digital Grocer. Thanks very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure having you. So let's just dive in. So can you share the reasons why your team decided to write this report? Yeah, I mean, I think several reasons. I think what, you know, you saw obviously post that D-Day, I guess, was some people in the food retail industry would call it when Amazon announced they were buying Whole Foods. You know, the first reaction for everybody in the industry was, you know, Instacart toast, basically. And then as the evolution of the Amazon uh, Whole Foods acquisition kind of transpired, what ended up happening was that Instacart was just a lifesaver for many food retailers in the country. So, you know, the assumption that this whole acquisition would kill Instacart turned out to be, you know, categorically false. And in fact, the exact opposite happened. And Instacart became the only solution for many retailers in the United States. And it just seemed to me as I observe all the differences in terms of the strategies all these retailers are taking in terms of how they use Instacart, that A, like the power is building with Instacart as opposed to the retailers, but as Instacart continues to develop stronger and stronger relationships with the customer, the customer starts thinking of Instacart as their provider, not the actual food retailer, and that becomes a very dangerous situation to be in, in my view, if you're a food retailer, especially food retailer with limited differentiation. So what we wanted to do, though, was prove that. And so that required a survey. And we did this extensive survey, customer survey across the United States, you know, to gauge what the customer, I guess, perspective on what, you know, what Instacart was. And the data and the survey was overwhelmingly positive for Instacart. That's amazing. And now in your research, is Instacart a good strategic fit for the retailers out there? I mean, from my perspective, no, but I also don't know that the reta many retailers don't have a choice. So, and when I say no, I, I mean, first of all, it's a great, you know, instantaneous solution because it, you know, developing the infrastructure for all these food retailers is extremely costly and, you know, time consuming. And, 
retailers, I think food retailers have been in complete and utter denial that the customer behavior was changing. So they don't have any of the infrastructure and they haven't put any of the cost and time allocation towards it. So obviously Instacart, given its name, <laughs> provides an instant solution. So that's great because if you're a food retailer, you know, you're just seeing the data and saying, oh, you know, my e-commerce sales are growing at X percent or whatever the number may be. But depending on what your structure is with Instacart, you're losing money on every single transaction that takes place through Instacart. And again, that's not across the board because different retailers have different structures with Instacart. So that's not a blanket statement. But put it this way, if you're a retailer and your prices in your store are the same as the Instacart pricing, then that implies that you are paying Instacart a fee because it's not coming through a markup on the product. Instacart's not getting paid through a markup on the product. You're paying Instacart a fee to have price parity. So you're losing money on every single ticket. And more importantly, the reason I, so it, it was an instant solution, but longer term, the, the bigger and bigger Instacart gets, the less control you as the retailer have. And so you lose the control with the customer, you lose the customer data or you know, in a best case scenario, you're just sharing the data, but Instacart has data and you've basically delayed, you know, addressing a problem that you're going to have to address. And at that point, I mean, I think it's safe to say that it, it becomes very difficult, you know, unless you have a strategic partner to work with to move away from an Instacart solution because you're faced with some of these risks that you just mentioned. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, I think that the retailers in their minds are just thinking about the top line and saying, well, we've preserved our top line. They're not thinking about necessarily what the economics are of that particular basket in the sense that, well, yeah, we just lost money on that purchase. So that's great. We preserved the top line, but we did not preserve the bottom line. So, and where do the lines get blurred between Instacart solution and the retailer's brand? Well, I mean, if you saw some of the charts in our report, I think what was very telling is that if you're a retailer with very limited differentiation, the lines are already blurred. Um, the only two retailers that were skewed to the fact that if the retailer removed themselves from Instacart, that the customer would actually still go to that particular retailer to shop. The only two that stood out were Sprouts and Costco. The others we're pretty much kind of 50-50. Like, I'd just use another retailer on Instacart if my retailer of choice was no longer available. So I think the lines have already blurred and so for many it, retailers. And essentially, shoppers are, quote-unquote, I mean, your opinion would be, are they really addicted to Instacart? Or is it, are they addicted to it because of the convenience of delivery or the fact that they can buy online? Well, I think they're addicted to the convenience, but you know, the, there's definitely a first mover advantage situation here with Instacart from the perspective that they have all the shoppers, they have the infrastructure. You know, no one else is even close in capabilities to Instacart from a breadth geographically, but also of format. So it's almost like scale begets scale, and, and so to the extent that Instacart keeps up the momentum it seems less and less likely that other solutions will present themselves to retailers that will circumvent Instacart. You know, you talked a little bit about the markup of the products that are sold online versus in-store. What are the other ways that Instacart makes money? To put it in perspective, so different retailers, so say a Costco, you know, a Costco has engaged with Instacart and has said, like, we're not subsidizing anything. You know, we'll figure out what makes sense from a markup perspective. So they've come to some agreement on what the actual markup would be. If I go to say, you know, if I go to Costco's website and I 
use the Instacart portal, but through Costco, and I'm a member, I'm going to get a certain percent markup on the product to have the product delivered. Costco is completely agnostic. The customer pays everything. The customer pays the markup. The customer pays the delivery fee, et cetera, et cetera. So in that scenario, there's a markup situation. In other scenarios, the retailer, if they insist on price parity, they will basically agree to what the fee should be. So, you know, it could be like somewhere between, I've heard anywhere from five to like nine percent markup, depending on the retailer, sorry, percent fee paid to Instacart from the retailer, if that's what the strategy is. Obviously, there's a vendor dollar component. You were just talking about this in terms of the ability Instacart will have to provide customer data to the vendors, but also help sell products specifically and targeted to customers. And then there's soft dollar support, because if you're a smaller well, if you're any retailer, you don't have time or inclination to take images of every, you know, all 50,000 SKUs in your store. So there's a soft dollar setup support process that they would also make money off of. And then obviously there's delivery fees and service fees. So in the case of the vendor dollars, you know, because historically, we, you know, I think the audience would know that trading co-op dollars are to a certain extent extremely important to the grocery retailers that are out there today. And so if Instacart's getting those dollars, is there any evidence that they're co-sharing those dollars back out with their retail partners? There's no real discussion around it. I think every, I can't speak for Instacart, but my guess is it's not in their best interest to relay any of that information. But I will tell you that it's not, in my view, coincidental that Kroger suddenly decided to remove vendor dollars from their annual filings and not tell us what those dollar amounts are anymore. Because my sense is that there will be some reallocation. And, you know, we show some charts in that report that look at what vendor dollars are as a percent of EBIT for the retailers. And I mean, some of it, I mean, in the case of Kroger, vendor dollars exceed EBIT by almost a multiple of three times. So those dollars are really important for, for retailers. And if, if Instacart has, the, they not only have the data and they have the customer relationship, but they also have a much broader demographic and geographic view than any retailer would have other than like a Walmart or an Amazon because they're, you know, they're national and they're covering all formats. So why do they need the retailers at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. I mean, obviously they have to go to a retailer to shop, but as their power increases. I mean, I'm not sure that they really do need the retailer because, you know, a Sprouts can't prevent an Instacart shopper from walking in the, you know, in the front door and starting to do the picking. Like there's nothing they can do about it. So just a regular gig worker doing their job. Yeah. And it's (laughs) true. It's kind of like Kevin's, Kevin's comment in his post. How do you prevent Instacart from using the Whole Foods data and redirecting the shopper to someone else? Then the question becomes, whose customer is it? Is it yeah, the brick and mortar, or is it Instacart? Yeah, and that's and you know, that's the the challenge, right? And that's the slippery slope. I think that's exactly the point that this survey was. The biggest point on the survey for me was the headline that you know, if my chosen retailer just suddenly disappeared from the Instacart platform, forty three percent of the customers surveyed said they would just use a different retailer. Wow, and that was the metric that caught my attention because I know in. The post that I read, uh, there was a comment by Tom Furphy where he said that 43% equates to 43 cents on every dollar. Mm-hmm. And then right. the calculation is for every 5% of sales volume with, as a retailer, you're potentially losing up to 2% or more of market share. 
Well, yeah, and he doesn't get into this, but the other metric that's even more important, and this is more this is more relevant for a union operator just because of their higher fixed costs, like this metric wouldn't be as severe, say, for a Costco, but for every one for one percent sales loss, you've lost ten percent of EBIT. Oh, and that you know, it would be a little it would be significantly lower for a Costco, but mm-hmm. but that's a kind of rule of thumb. Wow, that is an, an, an impressive number. Now, Karen, what's your advice for retailers that are out there today kind of thinking, you know, about this and they're listening to this podcast or they've read some of the commentary that's out there on, online? Like, what should they do? Well, I mean, I'm sure there are. Well, either way, you're going to have to incur costs on your own. So I think you really, I mean, I don't know that I, I can say I applaud Kroger, but you know, Kroger has obviously decided that they do need their own solution. And so they've partnered exclusively with Ocado, you know, at the time. So that would be for their delivery solution. And, and at the time of the announcement, I was definitely in favor of that because it, you know, they had exclusivity for a, you know, home delivery solution problem with that is the details have kind of become more available is that the timeline to get something like this ramped in terms of the Ocado solution is just way too extended. I mean, they just broke ground on their first facility for Ocado and the costs per facility are enormous. So at the time I thought, you know, good for you, Kroger, like you guys realize that you need to have your own solution, but as I kind of observe what's happening, I'm not so sure that having next day delivery out of a facility that just cost you $300 million is the right one. You know, Ahold has gone to much more of like a kind of hub and spoke model with much smaller fulfillment centers, kind of in, I believe, in the 30 million range to be a depot to do delivery within their markets. Maybe that's a little easier for an Ahold just because of the density of their markets. But honestly, that's why I kind of say, like, is Instacart, like, the Instacart addiction is on the customer side and the retailer side, because I haven't seen a lot of other viable alternatives that don't come with significant expense. Yeah, in our world, when we're working with our, we like to call our super regional retailers that, you know, may span five to 11 states. There is this kind of strategic approach that kind of looks at delivery, curbside pickup, or click and collect as being extremely commoditized solutions that isn't a one-size-fits-all depending on your geographical distribution of your stores. And kind of the leading thesis is, number one, own your experience, own your brand. Two is pick a partner that ultimately at the end of the day represents you and the equity you've invested in terms of brand presence in the market, but scales with your needs. And so more often than not, what we see happening, it may be one or two or three different delivery partners to kind of own the need. And much like your report kind of talks about, we're actually also seeing retailers that have reached the tipping scale in terms of a positive ROI when it comes to e-commerce and suddenly they realize, wait a minute, we okay, we took the check the box approach two years ago. We need to change. We need to own the experience now. And I think kind of slowly loosening those grips in terms of where the pendulum is being swung here and bringing it back to real world. But I, th- I don't think it's a one size fits all approach, you know, especially when it comes to Kroger. I would agree with you that investment is a tremendous investment. You have to have, quite frankly, the order volume to be able to substantiate something like that. I'm not sure if Kroger's there. I think some of the some of the banners that they own, namely a Harris Teeter, would definitely be there. You know, they are a gold standard in, in the space. 
know, Karen, I got to say, I really appreciate having you on the show today. Your report is enlightening. And, you know, I really look forward to hearing more from you guys uh, at Barclays. And, and if somebody wants to get a hold of this report, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, happy to. So my, I think best way would probably just be to email me at Karen, K-A-R-E-N dot short, S-H-O-R-T at barclays.com and I'm happy to provide the report. And yeah, no, it's been very interesting. I, I would, one thing I would just maybe also leave you with is, you know, Walmart's approach, Walmart has the ability to have more flexibility because some of these retailers that are union also have work rules that prevent them from finding solutions and like reallocating employees to different tasks. But, you know, what Walmart has done is, A, they're non-union, obviously, but B, they appreciate that they need to own the experience for the customer. So they do everything within their four walls, and all they are doing is outsourcing the last mile. And the last mile is obviously the most commoditized component of the experience. So that's another angle, I guess, you could take if that's if it's an easier solution. But it's just that's not available to a lot of retailers just because of work rule. Restrictions. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a great article yesterday from Walmart Canada's CEO mm-hmm. who have partnered with their building developer. Penguin, Penguin. Pickup. Yeah. And yep. so so the developer owned by, I can't remember the name of the family here in Toronto, they basically run the real estate for all of Walmart Canada. They've created on-site facilities and they were kind of singing praises about it. And I think we'll be sharing that across on yep. LinkedIn. Okay. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Don't forget to download our next episode where I'm sure we're going to be tackling an, another amazing subject. And Mark, how do people get a hold of us? The usual way, it's www.mercatus.com. Our social channels are listed in the footer of our webpage. That's at Mercatus Tech on Twitter or via email at info at Mercatus.com. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.